Hello everyone, welcome to yet another exciting episode of the FM Times podcast and this one is a very special episode. I am with uh, a very special guest, Jordan, who's, who's director of PropTech for uh, JLL Asia Pacific. Someone I've really admired over a period of time, looked forward to everything that comes out from his Twitter and I'm super happy to have Jordan with us for this episode where we are going to talk about everything around facilities management, hard services and the future of it. Uh, so, but before that, a very warm welcome to you, Jordan. Super awesome to have you. Would you like to say hello to the listeners? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Imesh. It's, it's, I mean, it's great to catch up with you uh, anytime, whether it's Twitter or it's, you know, just a quick chat. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested to let the world sort of eavesdrop on, you know, a lot of the conversations you and I have had over time, just hmm. sharing ideas and sharing, you know, some of the cool stuff we're seeing. So yeah, I guess we can we can get right into it. That's awesome, mate. I mean, although if, I'm, I'm assuming that everyone who is probably going to be listening into this uh, episode would know you, but would still like love you to give a background of what you've been up to at JLL and beyond. A brief background sure. from your side, mate. Yeah, so at JLL, you know, a lot of my work is, I, I try to explain it, it's kind of like our, our what, what was called A&R in the music industry, you know, and may still exist, but the reason I always use that is that's what I wanted to do when I was when I was young is I wanted to go out and just watch bands and and you know bring the ones I thought oh these guys have a chance to really make it or these girls are going to change this type of music that kind of thing and now I do the same thing with tech right it, like it's sort of trusting your you, you you watch everything you pay attention to everything you absorb lots of information and then you just try to look for those small differentiators uh, that you know it, it's Everyone, like, people who have a sort of armchair view of technology, they want everything to be life-changing. Oh, it yeah. had, like, the, there's only, there only seems to be one target, and that's the moon. And everyone forgets that even the biggest moon shots were yeah. standing on the shoulders of giants, right? The iPhone wasn't... The iPhone arguably transformed how we live our lives almost entirely right. a right. decade ago. But that was a bunch of cool devices cobbled into one. It wasn't somebody said, okay, I'm going, like... It's not like the light bulb, you know what I mean? Where it's mm. like even that, you know, the light bulb was the manifestation of material science and better understanding of chemistry and things like that, and mm. physics, obviously. And so, you know, I'm looking for the small differentiators that I think can compound into big differentiators. And I think, you know, you and I can talk about hard services today. I think mm. there are a lot of those. I think there's a lot that, unless you're reading not necessarily scientific journals, but really sort of like the the types of blogs that keep their finger on the pulse of those scientific journals. You mm. may not know what to anticipate. And so I think that's that's really what I do at JLL is pay attention to those things mm. and then try to inject that into the bigger technology strategy that we have. And then that means, you know, working with a lot of the startups. And I think it's, it's also a two-way sort of line of communication in that a lot of startups know a very narrow part of the problems that they want to solve. Yeah. Um, and it's often because they're born of very capable people who get bored in the type of work they're doing and they want to build something better. And there's, there's absolutely, that's incredibly admirable, but it usually means they're solving their problems and right. not, not the, you know, that you're treating a symptom many times rather than a disease. And so right. try to help them understand you are on the right track, but this, you know, 
this part of the business that you existed in or this part of building operations that you existed, that's painful for you because you've not, the tools haven't been provided for everyone else to get you the kind of information mm. that you need. So I think we'll get into that with some examples as the conversation goes on. Outside of that, outside of JLL, I, I, I own part of a couple of breweries here in Hong Kong. I've invested, I've started really getting into angel investing and then also into the, the crypto space most recently. And I'm seeing more and more that those worlds could probably very easily collide. The, the sort of structures that Web3 technologies are allowing could really help accelerate innovation across every sector, but I think PropTech mm. is one that stands to benefit quite a bit. So mm. that's that's what I've been looking at. That, that's a pretty wide spectrum. I've always been interested in the in the breweries part of, uh, of what you've been doing. So hopefully when I do get to visit Hong Kong, uh, would be glad to visit the brewery as well and sort of slip into the beers that come out of the brewery. Thanks, thanks Jordan for this, for the for the introduction. Without much ado, we would like to dive into into the topic that we wanted to discuss. And is, as you rightly said, all our past conversations have been around what's happening around hard services in FM. And, and all that's set to change. Just, just just to start the conversation, is there anything particular that you've seen over the last couple of years change in the hard services part of it? We've, we've heard so much around uh, getting people back to uh, workplace, the uh, the way you clean the, uh, the workplace and you maintain the softer aspect of facilities management. What's changing in the hard services part of it? Yeah, the, the biggest, the, the absolutely most fundamental tectonic shift in hard services is, mm. is around environmental sustainability and governance issues. Mm. So what you have to remember about assets, when I'm using the term assets in this context, I'm talking about a whole building, right. uh, the asset holder, the landlord, the investor, whoever owns that, they know that that asset is not going anywhere. So mm. that challenge we talked about before, the soft services challenge, or how do I get bodies in space and continue mm. to get a return on that mm. is actually right now less important to how do I make sure I'm going to be compliant with the increasing amount of, I would argue, far too late regulation in the space, but at least it's happening. How, how am I going to be able to address new regulation around ESG goals? And how am I going to be able to demonstrate to people who now have a lot more choice as to where they work? that Got my it. building is a better option than the one even right next to it, right? Cool. So yeah. that there's an escalation in that that viewpoint around the hard services. And so when it's a it's a wider viewpoint, it's a macro cool. view around ESG, but cool. the first place you can look to that is the consumption side of the hard services of the asset, right? And is that view particularly across the globe or is more that US centered or, or let's say Europe centered? You know, I, I would have told you it's very US centered, maybe even six months ago. And, and mm -hmm. more and more, I think it's just, it's global. It's, Australia has led the way in this mm -hmm. in many ways because Australia's mm -hmm. had created a lot of, as you know, better than I can, right. uh, I can articulate. But the, the standards that Australia has created, it, they've created a market for this type of advisory service that, you know, the likes yeah. of JLL plays into. But the, the world is catching up, the world is wising up. And APAC, the region that I spend the most time paying attention to, because it's what I'm under, what's under my care, is definitely wising up to it. But what I would say is, it's an outside-in wising up. Mm. And what I mean by that is, 
the asset holders that have most been prioritizing this are typically large asset holders from other parts of the world that just have big portfolios here. That's not to say that the local asset holders in different geographies are not starting to bring this up, but that goes back to that idea of escalation I talked about earlier. Like it's right. there's becoming hopefully a beautiful arms race, but an arms race nonetheless. It's eventually going to be uh, people will have to do the catch up, but I mean. There's this interesting part that you said that the focus is a lot more on ESG and I was looking at uh, some of the reports, particularly I think it was prob probably from Deloitte where they said that there's, a, there's extreme cost pressures or, uh, as well. Is that something that's driving a lot of change in the hard services part of it? Where you know that your revenues are sort of drying up and you would want to run the assets uh, which includes the entire building and every subcomponents in, in that sense in a manner that's a leaner. Is that also a factor that comes up? I think it's more on the opportunity cost side than I would say that it's on the expenditure side. Hmm. So, you know, it is, it is, if we don't do this now, are we going to be compliant when this comes up? If we don't do this now, are we going to be a case study in not doing it right? And, you know, really turn ourselves off to the market. But even our own JLL research, right. and I can find this research to share with the audience. It's very public research, but that would be awesome. I believe our latest survey of like, this is of occupiers mm. uh, saying 70% of them said that they'll be making tenancy decisions based on ESG factors. Now, I take statistics like that always with a grain of salt because that's like saying, you know, how many books do you read a year? Everyone's going to probably overestimate. But if you say how many how many alcoholic drinks do you have a week, we tend to underestimate, right? Like who's, mm. who wants to say, no, I'm not going to make a decision based on this this issue that we know is very important. Right. So it actually surprises me that it was only that 30 percent said no. This is this is such a such a huge priority. But I think it's more the motivation. If we're looking at this almost, I don't want to say in a cynical way, but if you're looking at it through the most skeptical lens, I would say the motivation is not about expenditure. Okay. Because, you know, even though you're, when you're talking about asset holders, uh, mm. the numbers don't quite line up the way they do on the occupier side. So JLL uses this heuristic of 330, 300, which is for every $3 you spend on energy and overhead, you spend $30 on rent, you spend 300 on people, right? So there's mm. orders of magnitude of 10 each way. That doesn't quite work in the, in the asset holder space. You have a lot, you have a lot more people power in the asset order space but the expenditure just isn't there. They tend to be, I don't like this term, but it's often mm. referred to as low skill workforce. Mm. Um, so that's where there is a balance. I think there's, there's a need to understand actually what that ratio looks like because it is, it's a lot more balanced in terms of hard services versus soft services when you're talking about purely the asset itself. But we cannot forget that, you know, it's, even each individual asset that makes up a portfolio is a business mm. in itself. So we're not mm. just talking about the people that are cleaning the floors or repairing the building. We're talking about the people moving paper around or even, you know, my colleagues handling mm. the brokerage side of that particular asset as well. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it, I still think though, more of that 
lies on the opportunity cost part of it. You don't want to not be the ones addressing these things because they can send, there's a sense that the zeitgeist and by extension, yeah. the regulatory climate and the economic demand is going to force that, right? Those, the, the invisible hand is really the factor I think that most people are, most asset holders are considering when they're yeah. looking at ESG and, and how their hard services should address those issues. Makes sense. And, and when I hear you say this, I, would, I, would it be sort of okay to infer that this largely holds to the opportunity cost versus the expenditure cost narrative holds true for commercial real estate versus when you look at infrastructure like airports or, or, or healthcare, where you know you, you are really looking at the cost part of it or you say that's also almost similar trend for them as well, outside of the commercial well, real estate. No, that's a good question. And I think it's a, it's a fair sort of hmm. uh, splitting of hairs in all of this is that, yeah, I really look at more the commercial office space. We manage, you know, we manage government sites, we manage residential property and stuff, but largely like the largest swath of everything we do is commercial real estate. Commercial real estate. So that's hmm. first where our expertise lies, right? And the, I think the other thing is, is when you talk about things like airports or the more industrial side of things, hmm. those those assets are such bespoke machines, right? Mm. Even an airport, like it, airports are so unique. You and I, you and I have seen enough of them to know mm. that like airports are so unique as assets mm. that oftentimes whatever has been built to run it is is quite different and quite bespoke when compared to even like office towers where you know you, you you're buying the same different gen sets, right? But the configuration right. is is, is incredibly different so i think in that respect i don't think it's terribly different but i'm less sort of informed to oh. be able to speak to those types mm. of things no makes sense makes sense one of the quotes that i've i've been you know it's it's not a very old quote but uh, jeff bezos uh, said that a lot of people would ask what's going to change in 10 years and not very many people ask what's not going to change in 10 years so if if we were to look at the hard services part of it and stick to commercial real estate, something that you and JLL in particular do a lot of. What do you think is not going to change in the hard services part of things or operations and maintenance? I think what's not going to change is is materials, right? And I know that seems pretty pretty generic, but that I I say this in a somewhat pessimistic way because there's been some amazing advances in materials. But our society, our economy has been so focused, especially in the West, on things like digital services. And that's that's where I focused. Yeah. Uh, so of course I benefit from that in many ways. But regrettably, I think not enough is gonna change in the materials that are used. And when I'm saying materials, I'm talking about like the the types of metal that makes up a motor, right? The types of the types of metal or the types of materials that make up the actual building itself. Yeah. So why do I highlight that, that it's not going to change? It's like, we should address problems knowing that's not going to change. Mm. So actually one of the companies that I've been paying a lot of attention to and full disclosure actually invested in not long ago is a company called Geometrid out of Singapore. Mm. And Geometrid has taken a somewhat low tech way to mm. track the supply chain of building materials. And when I say low tech, it, what I mean by low tech is like the tech, the digital side of it's really good. It just uses QR codes and simple optical recognition. We don't need 
we don't always need RF or narrowband IoT or anything like that right. for tracking purposes. When a lot of times we can just track the change of custody and be able to measure a lot more than we could in the past. So okay. what do I mean by that? Well, in the case of their product, say your all of your plumbing systems, your larger pipes are being fabricated offsite and brought in as they often are on the construction site. So there's, they're being fabricated, the fabricator puts the tag on, the tag gets scanned every time it changes hands. And when I say every time, fabricator to the delivery folks, delivery yeah. folks to the site receiving it, to the person putting that in. Yeah. And what makes that interesting is you can then start to measure things like distance traveled the weight times the distance traveled. Now we're starting to see an, an impact on, or we're able to measure the impact that that building has on the supply chain from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So in the heart, in the heart services world, it's easy. And a lot of people have done this better and understand this better than I do. It's easy to understand the consumption side and the consumption right. impact, mm. but the production impact is a factor that not enough people have been looking at. So when you ask the question, Mm. what's not going to change in 10 years mm. what's not going to change is a lot of the actual production you know what is produced but how it's moved how those goods are moved i think is something that we can start to have some real impact by monitoring by measuring and by managing mm. so you know that's that's really i think the key there is are we making sure that if we can't if in many cases we still have to use mm. for instance concrete right mm. How are we reducing what that is or what the impact of the use of that concrete is? Because we know that concrete is awful for the built in or for the it's great for the built environment. It's awful for the natural environment. And so how do we if we can't change that usage, then how can we measure and manage the other impacts that using it has? So this is more, this is interesting and this is again more during the construction or the pre-construction of the entire life cycle you're saying and, and what you yes. say is that the post-construction phase has been sorted to a very large extent. I mean, you 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 have a lot more technology advancement around measuring energy and, and, and some of the other aspects that go in, but not the, the, not the pre-construction or during construction stage that happens. Anything on the post-construction stage where you see what's not going to change in the hard services or, or O&M side of things? I mean, I think from, from what would not change is the need for people. I think we're really starting to like, we're, we're missing from, hmm. there's a real shortage of engineering expertise in that space, right? In the operations space already. Right. And that shortage is not going to change. So you really need to look at how do you centralize expertise and how do you allow for remote support? That, that I think is gonna be a really big one. And I know this is sort of walking a tightrope between the hard and soft services, but mm. hard services are always critical dependencies, right? And right. so the shortest, with the shortage of the engineering skill set. You need to be able to centralize that knowledge. You need to be able to dispatch in faster ways. Mm. Um, you know, and one of the things, honestly, that we've been looking at uh, from the industrial space is drone deliveries. If there's an industrial asset that's way out and we need replacement parts, can drone delivery help, you know, reduce days down to hours, right? That yeah. Those are the kinds of things we're saying, okay, how can we start to be thinking about that, that that's what's not going to change what's not going to change is that 
these hard systems in assets are going to still have create critical dependencies. They're still hmm. core things. And the only thing you can add to that is that connectivity is now probably been elevated hmm. to that level hmm. of mechanical, electrical, and plumbing that is electrical, which I wouldn't, right? Power right. versus connectivity. You rarely can have connectivity without power, but that's changing too, right? Hmm. So it's no longer sort of a, a, like, you can have power, right, in a building, but with many of these, especially automated systems that are now being deployed, without mm-hmm. connectivity, its capability is very limited. And mm-hmm. on the other side of it, now we're seeing some narrowband IoT that really doesn't need to draw from the building's power. Right. The power from the connection itself is enough to at least to provide the information that we need. So I think mm-hmm. when you look at those, those four, so maybe we can come up with a better acronym than MEP, right? But it's mm. it's now MEP plus C connectivity. That is mm. not going to, that's in fact, probably only going to increase in its importance over the next decade. And, and just to add to that, Jordan, that, that's, you know, interesting that you bring this people side of things up. And when I looked at this question and said, okay, what's not going to change? I said, are we going to, in 10 years, move into a, a space where you clearly said that the assets are going to be important. They're going to become all the more important because of the connectivity perspective and angle. And also in 10 years, you're probably not going to go to a stage where robots would, would maintain your assets. You'll still need people maintaining the assets, right? And that's where the vulnerability starts. And I would love to, to know what you, you are seeing in the market and, and what some of the companies, the likes of JLL are trying to do about it. I mean, and not just JLL, I mean, the, the industry as such. Is that you? You have a shortage of, of uh, tradesmen on on the uh, MEP side of things. You are also putting a lot of emphasis on digital or data first environment, which is not where people are used to be working. Is is that an, a, a huge area of concern, or and, and because it's concern, it might be a huge area of uh, opportunity as well for FM companies to say, okay, if we can master that, if we can create enabling tools for the O&M workforce or the, or the hard services workforce to, to work in a data-first environment, this transition might just be a lot more smoother. Do you, do you see some of that uh, happening? So yes, we're seeing, we're starting to see a recognition of the need for data to be harvested through the processes. It's no longer, an, it, for, the, for the companies that are doing it right, I should say, it mm. is no longer enough that a process is simply managed. It needs to generate new value through the creation of data. So what what we're looking at, I mean, some of the things we've been looking at is, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, a lot of prop tech or a lot of the tech that ends up on my desk is really white collar people solving white collar problems. Hmm. But that is not the heart of what makes an asset perform at its best. That's it's actually the people looking after, you know, and again, not soft services in terms of cleaning, but just paying attention to the hard services systems, right? To make sure they're working correctly. But ultimately, not only do we rely on engineering expertise, but sure. there is, you know, some of the brightest people are the people who didn't get that engineering degree. But they know exactly, you know, like uh, I, I remember I had my grandfather could hear an engine over the phone and he'd know what was wrong with it, right? Like he just like, 
They, and, and my grandfather was an engineer. He was just someone who had mm. worked around equipment for years. Right. And we have a lot of grandfathers in our in our business in the world of you know making assets run. Mm. And so the tools that they need are almost already in their hands. Everyone has a mobile device. These computers that are capable of doing so much that have things like cameras in them to recognize things. So. The problem is, though, is that so much of just the simple act of inspecting and paying attention to these things, just checking, you know, simple health checks, they're not allowing They still are in a state where they don't create data that allows us to analyze for patterns. And that would help us again. Same, same thing. The same thing is true as if we can measure it and monitor it and manage it. Right. Mm. We're not creating those mechanisms at the lowest levels. And that's why the information that we want to evaluate at higher levels of businesses, the businesses that own these assets or manage these assets, the quality of the data is not there because we're paying attention to it in a snapshot view. And so just as tools like Google Maps provide a certain level of convenience in exchange for being able to create new and more powerful data set, we need to be thinking that same way about how we service the people that inspect and look after our hard services on a day-to-day basis, whether or not they're your subject matter expertise, your subject matter experts, hmm. or they're just a person who the main point of their job is to walk around and simply say, yes, this is working as expected, or it may not be, right? Makes so sense. turning that in, turning those processes into, you know, most of the time, like nine, 99.999% of the time, turning those paper processes into data creation process doesn't require much, but it's just not a space that we pay enough attention to because, you know, and when I say we, I mean, we as the industry, JLL is starting to pay attention to that, but we as the industry, you know, we haven't paid, we haven't paid enough attention to that because it's easy to think, well, this is not, you know, like this is not a huge impact on our balance sheet, but we don't know that it isn't yet because that data doesn't exist. And I think whoever gets that data first is going to have an absolutely massive advantage over anyone else in the same space. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I like the most when you said that white collar people solving white collar problems and, and, and as you said, most of the people who work on the assets are blue collared workforce and and you don't really have a a support system of, of sorts for, for them. But that's probably maybe a problem to solve. Just before we conclude, some great points from you, Jordan, but just want to be sort of as we close, want to know what are some of the aspects that you're particularly excited about in the hard services space? You 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 were you were speaking about uh, your in, your interest in crypto recently, but anything particularly that you are looking forward to in, in the coming, uh, you know, short to medium term and say that this is something that you're very excited about in the hard services space? Short term? absolutely augmented reality we the mixed reality or virtual reality they have their play but i think like when i'm referring to augmented reality i'm not talking about smart glasses although that's Hmm. coming people realize i'm just talking about when you hold your phone in between uh, a physical object in an environment and you see things that are not there right right that can be something like as simple as a user manual i can now access the user manual or that could be something like troubleshooting guides. And those troubleshooting guides might just be a document in today's world. But I'm already seeing amazing tools where those aren't just 
documents it's a step-by-step -step instruction right like yeah. i almost think about it like those horrible action tv shows like somebody's yeah. defusing a bomb right like you kind of get instructions how to defuse a bomb uh, right. and, and these are critical dependent systems they are kind of a bomb to the operations of the business so if we're able to use the device that's already in someone's hands, the expertise that's a thousand miles away to say, okay, turn this, move this, do this, or don't touch anything, turn this off, turn this off, we'll get someone there right away. Make it's sense. gonna minimize the impact, right? Those seconds matter, those minutes matter. And so augmented reality, okay. providing information and restricting the access to that information to the people who need to have it I think it's fantastic. I think everything from indoor navigation, being able to find something. I think a lot about the, uh, again, the relationship we can have, the expertise we can have, and the access that we can have because our mobile devices can communicate with different uh, things and can analyze different things. Short-term AR, middle-term has to be a knock-on effect of using AR, which is that AR gathers AR can passively gather visibility of the world. So what I mean by that is mm. your camera is pointed towards some sort of device and you get a graphical user interface or a graphical document presented in between the object and the screen that you look at, which changes what your view of that is. That's, that's AR as it looks like today, but the but the device itself doesn't see what's being presented on the screen. It only sees the object you're pointing it at. And there's a huge advantage in that because you can then gather images hmm. that help you understand the condition that it's in. So if we're doing these inspections through augmented reality and, and we're saying, okay, this is not working the way that it should be, right. uh, that the the image classifiers that can come later from that are going to be very powerful, right? So now all of a sudden you have a repository of, if you manage your asset and you do these inspections four or five times a day, in a year's time, you have a significant amount of photos to train machine vision models. Right. What, what works and what doesn't. And that means you can train drones to run these patrols for you, right? I mean, so you eventually again, build up for it because you need those images to be trained on. I mean, and the problem today is that you don't have those images or data points where a lot of training can happen. Well, the, the one thing this pandemic has taught or reminded a lot of people is the best tech imitates our own natural senses, sight. So we've created, you know, I've seen lots of machine vision that can recognize if someone's wearing PPE, specifically a mask in a closed environment. We've seen mm. stuff that can monitor mm. with its eyes how many people are gathered in a particular place. Hmm. The same can be made, the same sort of conditioning, the same sort of training of this technology can be uh, can be applied to machine systems, but it needs to know what to look for. So this is where I think incorporating necessary processes into an AR environment, while some hmm. using that to turn your existing workforce into both student and teacher. That's, that's the midterm that's really interesting to me. So if AR really emerges in the next two to three years, the things that that machine systems are going to be able to recognize because of the way we've been interfacing with our world has changed. And the midterm is going to be pretty cool. And then I would say just slightly longer view, uh, hmm. but only slightly longer. I think a lot of these have 
tandem trajectories is what decentralization of data is going to mean. So the, the word that everyone that scares everyone is blockchain, but if we wanted to make it even scarier is crypto. But <laughs> as I've, as I've personally entered the space, I really am starting to see the value of decentralized systems and how that can lead to better data transparency and the availability yeah. of that data transparency then allows for more participants to help improve processes. You don't need to necessarily be a domain and narrow field expert to be able to contribute or help improve, more importantly, help experiment with. So when you look at things like AlphaFold, the Google's application of their Alpha AI to protein folding in the healthcare space, like that's that's a massive scientific breakthrough. And we, these are, these are data sets that have been being gathered over decades. So imagine mm. what happens when we put, we turn our, our workforce in hard assets into uh, a massive source of data inflow. I think this could all snowball very quickly. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, I, I particularly like the, uh, the clear classification of what you are excited about in the short, medium and the long term. That serves the purpose of, of the conversation very well, Jordan. Anything else that you would like to, to, to uh, pass on to your peer group who might be listening and, and, and may want to make a few changes in the way they are doing health services? Any last piece, any, any piece of advice, suggestions? Yeah, look, I think the main thing is I, I've touched a lot on this, but I want to be really explicit in saying that the quality of the data you get only matches the quality of the tools you provide to put that data forward. You can't hmm. expect every other source of data below you to endure tedium that you're not willing to endure yourself. And so that's where when we, like, I just talked you through how AR could allow people to have to be new sources of data. Right. It's not really, I, I kind of misspoke. It's not a new source of data. That data is generated. People write it down on a sheet of paper and every now I mean, and you, then. Yeah, you just find a way to capture it and store it in a manner that it can be used. Otherwise, it, it doesn't get used anyway. Solve blue collar problems with white collar tech, and then you've sort of cracked the key, right? It's the, the, the adage in the data world is garbage in, garbage out, which is, I would argue is you're kind of asking for garbage if you're not providing any really tool to polish these things or make it easier. And so, yeah, uh, that's, why, that's why Google has the best data in the world, arguably, is because they make it so easy to give them the data. They make it almost, tyrannically convenient to give their data and we should be thinking we at a consumer level that people have certain moral issues with that but when you're talking about your workforce giving them convenience should have no moral objection to at all we're not taking your data we're taking the data that that you're generating and we're turning it into new value and the other thing i'd say Going back to that long view, what I think is the most exciting about decentralized platforms and the Web3 dApps that will emerge is not only can we create tools that turn the, the sort of bottom part of our workforce hmm. into, you know, I, again, I don't like that term low skill. Right. The lowest people in our workforce, within the workforce hierarchy, not only can we turn them into sources of data, but we can actually recognize and reward that value chain contribution, right? Okay. So when we decentralize and we create data transparency, we can see who's who's performing the most detailed inspections, who's spending the most time looking at this, who's giving us the best quality data, and we can actually reward that. And we're it's been really interesting as I've messed around with, especially some of the smart contracts technologies yeah. that are out there, 
Mm. see the consensus models and things that people are building that are really going to allow us to, I think, I, you know, it's not digital socialism, but it's just rebalancing, like, mm. right? Not perfectly balanced. Like, okay, everyone made, like, every time this transaction goes through, all 30 people get an even share. I don't mean it that way. But I mean that like the the world of hard services and especially the workforce around hard services has a high rate of turnover. One, because it's it can be somewhat uninspiring, but also because of that train that we're talking about. And I think if we find ways to reward work on a more sort of... And I think what, what I like best about that idea is that it provides an opportunity for, for that workforce to still find ways to grow. Uh, which is seemingly becoming a vulnerable area as we as we increase the investments around data and, and digitalization. So if you can if you can find a way to reward on that sense, that also allows them sort of an opportunity to keep growing in their own careers itself. So that's awesome, Jordan. Thanks a lot for taking uh, time out. I mean, I've my I've, I've taken three pages of notes to go along for my blog. I mean, some awesome points from from your side. So thanks once again for joining in. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And always, always like the words that you come up with. The, the, the one that I would uh, sort of take out from this is digital socialism. I'll, I'll, I'll probably read more about it. I need to find a better word to make, not make people so adverse. But I do believe, again, not, not pure harmony, but I think that if we, if we really look to tools that give people mm. opportunity in different increments, right? The performing of a task gets rewarded pretty quickly. I think what you'll people will surprise you how hard they'll work with just a little bit of different inspiration. Absolutely. I mean, just to put on one point on that, one tool that's been around for ages has been a CMMS in the FM space. And you know, people keep on investing millions of dollars trying to clean up data year after year or every five years to every 10 years. You do this exercise, large companies end up doing it. And, and as an outsider, I mean, the reason why I say as an outsider is not being from the industry. When I look at it, I say, and, and, and I echo what, you, what, you're, what you're saying over here, is that to change the way better data goes in, you do not need to have a better tool, but maybe reimagine the way the data is going in itself. And then you said that very uh, clearly, that if you can make it convenient, if, it, if you do not have to change a lot of natural behavior, Today, people use mobile phones, they use voice. And if you could, if you could you leverage some of the natural instincts that all of us have now, all of this would be, would be fundamentally a lot more easier. And again, you said it much better than anyone else would have said, use the white collar tech to solve the, the blue collar problems and, and, and you'll be in a good stead. And I completely concur with you, a company or a group of individuals who could do that over the short to medium term would eventually see uh, light at the end of the day and, and, and sort of give everyone a reason to see the transformation the way it should be. So thanks to Dan Jordan for your time once again. Have a great day ahead. It's been a pleasure having you on the, on the episode and hoping to catch up with you again sometime soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. The pleasure's been mine, man. It's always good to talk to you. <laughs>